0: cell says, hey, there's plenty of food for everyone. Welcome to the Primer
1: Blueprint Podcast. Why
0: don't we just divide from
1: our studios in Malibu, California?
0: Pass the genetic material along to the next generation. Our job will be done. There'll be more of us. This will be great. We'll all have a party and we'll all be fine.
1: Okay, back in the Malibu studios with Mark Sisson. And we have a ton of questions to tackle today. Last week we got carried away with the sleep podcast and, and stuck to all matter sleep. So if you didn't hear that one go back and take a listen. That was some good stuff. And now we'll have some assorted question and answer about primal living.
0: That sounds great. And um, encourage the listeners, if you have a question, uh, go to our site and find the SpeakPipe app, which allows you to record directly your question, however uh, complex or simple you want it to be. And we'll consider answering it on one of the future podcasts.
1: Well, let's take the first question from our Our man in Michigan, the Primal Transformation Seminar presenter, Carl Bendy, and he wrote about high-intensity weight training and sprint workouts. And he says, Mark, on Mark's Daily Apple and in your books, you mention using carbs like fruit, sweet potatoes, quinoa, etc. to refuel the muscle cells if you're an athlete. Then, to some contradiction, we hear how Primal gets us adapted so we become efficient at utilizing fat or ketones for fuel and lessen our dependence on carbs. So... If someone is maintaining a low-carb, ketogenic, below-50 grams-per-day diet to optimize fat loss and has become fat-adapted, is there still a requirement for these additional carbs post-workout? And is there a downside to not carb refueling after these types of glycolytic exercises?
0: Very interesting question and full of nuances. So if you are somebody who's doing a lot of glycolytic work, even if you are fat-adapted and ketone-adapted, if you're doing a lot of glycolytic work, say you're doing uh, metabolic conditioning type workouts, Metcon workouts at CrossFit on a regular basis, three days on, one day off, you probably need to replenish glycogen supplies on a daily basis. You probably need to top off the glycogen in the muscles, and the best time to do that would be the evening. And it doesn't mean 350 grams of carbs. It might mean 200 grams, 225, 250 grams of of safe starches in the form of, uh, again, what he mentioned, the quinoa, the sweet potatoes, you know, whatever, even the super starch, the the, um, high molecular weight glucose polymers. But the point is, your body will replenish glycogen supplies over time. So even if you are on a low-carb, even if you're on a very low-carb eating program and you're doing moderate amounts of activity, your body will replenish glycogen. It might take two or three days to replenish the glycogen, but it will restore glycogen through glyconeogenesis, gluconeogenesis. So the question then becomes how I apply this technology to my training. If I want to train hard every day, I probably have to top off the glycogen stores every day. If, take for instance in my case, I don't train hard every day. And I do that with a very real intent i don't want to train hard every day i want to train hard enough on the days that i do train hard that i couldn't possibly replicate that same training the next day in other words i want to do the kind of put the put my muscles through the kind of stresses that it takes 48 hours or 72 hours to fully re- recover from and during those 48 or 72 hours i'll normally replenish my glycogen stores anyway so i don't need to be doing extra amounts of carbohydrate if you look at animals in the wild, uh, they've got their diet so dialed in that they might a lion might sleep most of the day and then you know get out and, and run really hard for twenty or thirty or fifty seconds or whatever it is, and then go back to sleeping. They don't need to do that much exercise to um, optimize their body composition, if you will, because they're eating right, they're getting enough sleep, and they're not overtraining. When we look at a citizen athlete and the amount of training that a citizen athlete typically might choose to do, a lot of times it's probably accurate to say that they need to replenish glycogen because they're training so hard every single day. And even though they become good at burning fat, and even though they become somewhat keto-adapted, they're probably not in ketosis. They're probably still a what we would call an efficient sugar burner. So they're burning more fat. That's good. They're decreasing their body's total reliance on sugar or carbohydrate in these events that they're doing or in this type of training that they're doing but there still is that kind of requirement that they restore the glycogen on a day-to-day or night-to-night basis. Again, it doesn't take much to do that. It's not 700 grams of carbs. It's not some inordinate amount of carbs. It doesn't take much because if you're doing this glycolytic work, you probably aren't going for an hour and a half, two hours hard every day. You just couldn't do that. You couldn't recover in time it's an it's enough there's enough uh, variables here that we can fill a book, which is what I'm working on right now on on how strategically to plan your intake or not of carbohydrates in order to replenish or not the glycogen that you've that
1: you've exhausted during that day's workout. The primal endurance is the book you're talking about, yes, and I think there's a problem that we've talked about before and identified when you drift into that chronic pattern where your appetite seems to get out of whack. I remember it's been a long time since I've been chronically training triathlon, but when you're in that chronic pattern and training so much that your appetite goes beyond your replenishing needs, and then what we see on the starting line of even an Ironman distance race or marathon are folks with excess body fat despite a huge training regimen.
0: Yeah, that's the nature of the, um, uh, of the chronic cardio paradigm which is to assume that you need to put in a lot of miles in order to become good at what you're doing, uh, that you need to spend a lot of time at high heart rates. But the, one of the effects of that is you're burning a lot of sugar. You're not really training your body to become really good at accessing stored body fat and using that fat for fuel. You're just continuously promoting this, this carbohydrate burning or the sugar burning paradigm, which leaves you at the end of a workout exhausted and hungry. And then the brain kicks in and says, look, if this clown's going to try this again tomorrow, I'm going to have to eat a lot of carbohydrates tonight in order to fuel that. And in fact, I'll probably choose to eat more carbohydrates than I need in order to uh, to offset that that fuel loss that I had today. And over time, that's where we see people hanging on to the, ba- the, the body weight. They're unable to burn off the fat. Uh, in fact, some people actually gain weight. I mean, I, I, this is a comment I hear quite frequently about people who engage in... The startup phase of an endurance training program is that I'm doing a lot of miles and I'm gaining weight. What's going on? How, how, am I, how come I'm not burning off all that fuel? Well, you haven't taught yourself to become efficient. You haven't created that metabolic flexibility that allows you to access your stored body fat, that allows you to use ketones instead of glucose to fuel your brain, and that unburdens your brain of having to take in a lot of sugar just to keep it running all the time. Uh, so, again, lot, lots of variables here, lots of nuances here, but I don't think they're diametrically opposed as the question uh, started to state. It just is a matter of being very good and intuitive at understanding what your um, what your workout was today and what you plan to do tomorrow. So don't exhaust your glycogen today, eat nothing but fat tonight, and then plan on getting up and doing a, a series of interval uh, sessions tomorrow without some
1: some breakdown or some cost to that. So Carl, being an informed guy, served up somewhat of a loaded question because when he says, I'm really fat adapted, I'm in a low-carb ketogenic state, that pretty much defines that you're not in a chronic pattern and you're not in this over-reliance on glucose from the diet. Yeah, so he probably took that uh, advice for me to mean, well, it probably confused him because he thought he
0: was going to now need to, to replenish his glycogen stores in order to to train hard the next day. But the reality is, unless you're a world-class athlete who needs to train hard every day, if you're somebody who wants to just improve your performance, then it's not only not necessary to train hard every day, it may in fact be counterproductive to train hard every day. So it may be that you do some glycolytic work one day, and for the next two days, you might just do Um, low-level aerobic stuff or you might do some form of stretching or you might do some even you might even do some tempo work that sub-threshold that still is burning largely fat and isn't drawing on the stored glycogen that you depleted from the previous day so there are ways to uh, to wake up in the morning and, and kind of determine what it is you're you're ready willing and able able being a key word here to do that day in terms of training because if you're ready and willing but not able to do it because of what you did the previous day, uh, then don't do it. That's, that's rule number one of any kind of endurance training uh, protocol is if you are not 100% ready to do that workout today, there is
1: no harm in taking that day off or easy. Yeah, and I think it's something that a lot of uh, fitness enthusiasts don't realize is when you look at these elite athletes and you've been around the top triathlon marathon guys in the world for many, many years – They're so fit that it it appears that they're training quote-unquote hard, but most of their training is at a pace or at an intensity that's comfortable to them. So when you see them flying by on the trail, it's not the same as the casual person going doing their their group workout with their coach yelling at them and they're getting way glycolytic rather than predominantly aerobic and fat burning. Yeah, most of elite athletes spend probably 80%
0: of their training time, maybe more, uh, maybe 90% at what we would call sub threshold work work that they 've trained to be able to do uh, with ease and comfort and grace and without a lot of uh, uh strain without without uh, courting any kind of muscular injury um, it still contributes to their overall metabolic flexibility but it 's the real breakthroughs come in the ten percent of the work that they have spaced out over the course of a week so they put they put enough uh, recovery time in between those hard, hard breakthrough workouts. They've recovered in terms of their intake of carbohydrates, if that was required to replenish glycogen or not. But they've done all the work in between so that it, it may look like they're, they're, because they're going fast, it may look like, wow, they're, they're hammering hard all the time. No, they're going fast because they've earned that right to go fast at a very uh, low level of,
1: of what we would consider a normal output. So a good takeaway for a fitness enthusiast of any level is you should finish most of your workouts not feeling tired and extremely hungry. Bingo. Well, we're on a great pace, Mark, after answering, I think, one question here. So let's move on to uh, a SpeakPipe question from Michael. And this guy is one of the world's greatest artists. If you look at MichaelIves.com, fantastic stuff. He's out of Hawaii as well as Arizona.
0: Hey, Brad and Mark. Hi, this is Michael Ives calling from Lanikai, Hawaii. Hey, as I become healthier with my eating, I've begun studying the theme of food as information. Could you discuss how the different foods of the primal diet communicate with the cells as they come into the body and how it's all broken down? Thanks a lot. Aloha. Uh, great question. And at some, uh, at some esoteric level, all food is is communication. So every bite of food you take, Um, has a hormonal effect on the body. And the different macronutrients have different hormonal effects in and of themselves. So, you know, pure sugar taken when you're just at rest will raise insulin. uh, Or pure glucose will raise insulin. Um, That same glucose taken during an event, during like a contest, won't raise insulin unless it's in a huge amount. There, There are many different hormones that are released as a result of the foods that we take, whether it's insulin or glucagon or leptin or ghrelin. There are uh, neurotransmitters that are affected by the foods that we take in. Some of the foods that we take in, which have an herbal uh, genesis or they come from herbs, have actual pharmacodynamic effects on our bodies and may influence how we think or may influence, again, neurotransmitters, uh, other aspects of the thought process. Uh, may involve uh, may may become involved in the production of cortisol or in the production of adrenaline. All foods that we take in have a hormonal effect on the body, and and it's really about signaling different different cells and different receptors
1: with these types of food. Could it also be true that the information is uh, uh, treated differently by different people? So some people are going to eat something they're going to get fat, and some people aren't.
0: Yeah, I mean if you've if you've altered how the cells receive the information uh, that's probably the main issue with for instance uh, type 2 diabetes you've got cells that are that are not sensitive to the signaling that's put out by the insulin that was uh, increased by the amount of glucose that you took in in whatever bite of food or whatever amount of food uh, meal that you were consuming so absolutely different people have different uh, reactions to these foods, which is why we always come back to this experiment of one, which is why um, when we look at grains, for instance, and we look at wheat, and we look at wheat germ or we look at gluten, for instance, and the effect, gluten actually talks to the cells lining the gut and signals in some people um, the release of zonulin, and zonulin opens the floodgates and may be involved in what we call leaky gut syndrome. So this is just one molecule talking to a receptor site or another molecule on a cell that alters how that initial molecule is perceived or received by the cell. So it really is, in many regards, all about the communication between the molecules in food and the cells.
1: Okay, let's take a question from Lou about autophagy.
0: Hi, Mark. I've been following the Primal Blueprint for well over a year, along with intermittent fasting. I also read all I can find on autophagy and its effect on brain health. There's a little talk about the positive effects of autophagy in the paleoprimal community. I was wondering if you could give us your take on autophagy and its positive effects. Okay, so autophagy... Um also known as autophagy, but I think the correct pronunciation is autophagy, Uh, and it comes from auto meaning self and uh, phagy meaning uh, to eat, so it's to eat self, and this is one of the wonderful things, if you will, about intermittent fasting. When you uh, deprive a cell of nutrients, uh, the cell has a couple of options, and and one of those is to say, hey, uh, this is Time to do some house cleaning. Maybe we'll uh, we'll look at some damaged proteins or we'll look at some damaged fats. Uh, we'll consume those because there's no other source of nutrients in the short term. Uh, maybe we'll even do some repair to the DNA. So one of the uh, wonderful things about intermittent fasting, if you've become good at burning fat, and this is, the, this is I, I think, a, a key concept for a lot of people to get, that intermittent fasting works better for people who have been fat-adapted and keto-adapted if you take a sugar burner and you deprive them of a couple of meals what happens is they do go into ketosis but they start to uh, they start to consume muscle tissue because the brain is still expecting a supply of glucose on a regular basis to be able to run itself and in the absence of glucose the body uh, secretes, the the adrenal secrete cortisol the cortisol prompts the breakdown of muscle tissue to go to the liver to become uh, a couple of those key amino acids that can be converted into glucose to run the brain. It's sort of a it's it's a bad situation all, all around. When you are fat adapted and keto adapted and you skip a meal or two or three, um, there's no problem. Your body knows how to take fat out of storage and burn it as a fuel. You've become good at using ketones so the brain doesn't rely so much on glucose to run anymore. Now it now it's very good at burning ketones so you've unburdened the body of having to get a regular supply of glucose every couple of hours now when you so when you skip meals or intermittent fast as a sugar burner you get some of the same effects it's kind of interesting because you have people who go who are sugar burners who go then do a four day fast and claim that they've seen elvis or they've seen god or they've seen jesus because partly because the brain is going crazy not having gotten enough glucose because it's still glucose dependent kind of interesting to me that you would, so you still see some some benefits from the intermittent fasting. Now, from the point of view of a cell, a cell is sitting there and it needs nutrients to live and by the way the job of a cell is to divide into two. The job of an organism is to pass the genetic material along to the next generation. So from the point of view of a cell that's surrounded by a lot of different nutrients, particularly glucose, the cell says, hey, there's plenty of food for everyone why don't we just divide why don't we just take advantage of this this um, plethora of food this glut of of, um, nutrients around us we can divide we can pass we can do our job pass the genetic material along to the next generation our job will be done there'll be more of us this will be great we'll all have a party and all be fine now one of the things that happens when cells divide particularly in the human body if you've heard of telomere length there's a limited number of cell divisions in the human body so the more the cells divide sooner than they ought to the shorter theoretically the lifespan is of that organ or that, or that organism so cell dis- dividing isn't necessarily a good thing now let's take the same cell in a different context let's take that cell who's now no longer surrounded by this uh, amount of nutrients and this cornucopia of, of, of food around them but in fact it's a person who hasn't eaten for a couple of days, or skipped a meal or two, forget a couple of days, who skipped a meal or two, and now the cell says, hmm, there's no food around, so the last thing I'm going to do is divide, because now, there's since there's not even enough food for me, why would there be enough food for, for two? So the cell thinks to itself, well, you know, maybe I can go inward, I can look inward, and, and I can start to consume some of those damaged organelles, I can start to consume some of those proteins, that have become, uh, that were advanced glycated end products. I can start to use some of those fats that are no longer um, functional within me. And I can actually live off of that. I can eat part of myself to survive into the future and clean house and repair some of the damage and even repair some of the damage to the DNA. So that's really one of of those um, exciting aspects of intermittent fasting that, not a lot of people talk about, but is certainly there for people to to tap into as a as an anti-aging strategy or as a life strategy. That if you can actually prevent the cells from dividing before it's their time, theoretically you will live longer. Why is
1: it the cell's job to divide? Why is that their
0: purpose? Well, it's the purpose. <laughs> this this goes back to some concept that's uh, very deep in in. Uh, philosophical discussions, and that is the nature of humans and the realization, at least from a primal point of view, that we are no more or less than this bizarre permutation of hundreds of millions of years of evolution, um, billions in fact, if you go back to the original cells, where two strands of RNA in the primordial ooze had a propensity to replicate, and as life evolved it was really all about passing the genetic material advancing it into the next generation uh... and again for for whatever reason there is behind that whether it's some higher power or whether it's just uh... biochemistry at its at its most elemental level we still have this propensity we are we are on this planet to procreate and to create a new generation and within us ourselves uh, who have that same mandate, that is to to procreate, to become the next organism.
1: Let's hear from Samuel in Austria. Hi, my name is Samuel Scheiche from Austria and Europe. My question is about ketosis. I read that the brain needs about four days to utilize ketones efficiently as an alternative fuel. And I'm now wondering if it also expresses the required enzymes for that, also if you go in and out of ketosis on a daily basis, with, for example, MCT or coconut oil as a support?
0: Yes, the body can burn ketones throughout. Um, Cardiac muscle, skeletal muscle do very well on ketones. The brain happens to do very well on ketones, uh, but rarely has the opportunity because most of uh, normal living in this day and age provides so much glucose that the brain hasn't yet developed the metabolic machinery to burn ketones. Uh, It it works very nicely on glucose until the point that you withhold glucose. And when we talk about going into ketosis and we talk about becoming fat-burning beasts and becoming keto-adapted, that's the point at which we start restricting the amount of glucose we take in and forcing the brain and the rest of the body to build the metabolic machinery to use the ketones. Now that doesn't happen overnight and in many cases it doesn't happen in three or four days it might take a week or two for some people but the reality is over time there is an upregulation of the genes involved in manufacturing these enzymes that are so efficient at burning ketones And even more importantly, there is a concept known as uh, mitochondrial biogenesis, and that is the propensity of the cells, and in this case nerve cells, to increase the number of mitochondria because they are able to burn the ketones through mitochondria and to increase the efficiency or improve the efficiency of the mitochondria that already exist. So this is what we talk about when we talk about improving or increasing the metabolic machinery building the metabolic machinery to be able to burn ketones in the brain and fats throughout the body now once you've built this metabolic machinery and again it doesn't take place in a couple of days this is a long-term strategy this is why when we talk about the primal blueprint 21 day total body transformation the term 21 days is there because that's about how much time it takes to shift the body away from becoming a sugar burner into becoming a fat burning beast. That's the amount of time it takes for the signals to finally get to the level of the genes where the upregulation of the genes is sufficient to have caused the, the growth of new mitochondria and the improvement, the rebuilding, the improvement of, of the existing mitochondria. It's a process that you can't change on a meal to meal basis. You can't even change it on a day-to-day basis, but with consistent input from the diet and from exercise, from restricting carbs, from cutting back on sugar, from improving or increasing the amount of healthy fats, you can literally cause the genes to reconfigure the energy systems and the energy demands of each cell, and in this case, the brain cells as well, to where they depend more on fat, they depend more on ketones, and less on carbohydrates. Now, with regard to brain cells, the brain cells work really efficiently on ketones. By the way, cardiac muscle, heart muscle, uh, skeletal muscle works really well on ketones as well, which is why we're going to see a lot more low-carb athletes doing um, very high-performance activities on low-carb diets because they become so good at, at building this metabolic machinery, creating this metabolic machinery that can then burn the fats and burn the ketones. But back to the brain. So now that we've gotten into a state where... We've built a metabolic machinery, and we are promoting uh, the use of it through ketone uh, production because we're so good at burning fat, we're throwing off ketones. We've now created a situation where the brain doesn't require as much glucose to run on a daily basis. It'll run quite nicely on maybe a total of 30 grams of glucose in an entire day versus when that person was a sugar burner and may have required 120 grams of glucose just for the brain to get through the day so there's a dramatic drop off in the actual amount of glucose required to run the brain so the question uh, which is a good question is what happens when you go in and out of ketosis well if you go out of ketosis you don't lose that metabolic machinery the machinery is still there so yeah you can burn glucose because you can always really burn glucose it doesn't require the mitochondrial involvement to the extent that fats absolutely do and ketones do so you can always provide glucose, and you can always go back and forth between ketosis and not being in ketosis. It's what we call a cyclic ke- ketogenic diet. So I recommend to a lot of people: develop that skill, develop that, build that metabolic machinery, become good at burning fats, become good at burning ketones, and then if you decide to to go into uh, the the carbohydrate paradigm for a while to to get it to get out of ketosis and to maybe increase your carb intake to. 150, 200, 300 maybe even uh, grams of carbohydrate a day as provided Provided you don't stay there for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time you don't lose that metabolic machinery the body doesn't want to change that much the body doesn't want to, to adapt unless it really has to so we have this this propensity to maintain homeostasis on a bite-to-bite, day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis so we'll you know, if if we get into cold water, we shiver. If we're hungry, we'll take a bite of food. If we, you know, uh, if we if we take in too much sugar, we'll secrete a ton of insulin, which will take all the sugar out of circulation. Because these are these are minute to minute, moment to moment adaptations or acclimatizations that the body makes. But over time, these do become adaptations. So it it the body really doesn't want to shift that much unless you're going to create the environment on a regular and consistent basis. So if you built that metabolic machinery, it'll probably stay there. If you go back into the sugar paradigm for any length of time, yeah, you'll you'll lose some of that metabolic machinery. But, you know, it's like we have muscle memory. If you train hard for a long period of time and then you don't train for a while, it's a whole lot easier to get back to that strength that you once had because you, you...
1: because you created it in the first place. Be- easier than never having created it at all. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah. Now, how long does it take to get bumped out of ketosis? Is it instant, as soon as you pound your Gatorade, or what?
0: Yeah, that's, that is something that, um, that a lot of people have noticed, is that once you're in ketosis, it really only takes one or two uh, meals of 50 to 100 grams of carbs, depending on how sensitive you are to this, to get out of ketosis, uh, but that doesn't mean that you're not still burning ketones. It doesn't mean that you're not still burning fat. It just means that you're not in this state where the primary driver of everything is fat and ketones. So once you're out of ketosis, again, not not a big deal. It's you can you can enter into and and come out of ketosis on a day-to-day basis if you want. You know, one day in ketosis, another day not. Um, I prefer to think in terms of a few days at a time or a week at a time or two weeks at a time in ketosis and then a week or two out and that sort of cyclic ketogenic phase. Cause I would really never recommend that anybody spend a lifetime in ketosis. Uh, there are people who do that, but it's not, if for no other reason, then I like vegetables and I like, uh, fruits enough that I want to enjoy them, uh, to the point that, that, uh, if I had a bowl of, of fruit in front of me or, you know, had some other form, like a sweet potato or something. I wouldn't want to never have the
1: chance to eat that. Thanks. That makes sense, Mark. We have a ton more questions lined up and we're kind of running out of time. So we're going to hit the questions again at the next podcast right now. I want to thank everyone for listening and also just uh, mention all the exciting things that we have coming up. First, next on the horizon, the big deal is PrimalCon Con New York for the first time going to the East Coast. June 5th through 8th at Mohonk Mountain House. And we have all kinds of fun outdoor activities planned as well as the full slate of presentations and expert presenters, both activity-wise and lecture-wise. So if that appeals to you, check out the primalblueprint.com website and all the details and incredible pictures of this beautiful resort up in the Hudson Valley, the Mohonk Mountain House. And then, of course, our flagship 5th annual, hard to believe that we've been doing PrimalCon for five years now, over at Oxnard at the NBC Suites Mandalay Beach Resort, September 25th through 28th. Uh, Also at primalblueprint.com with all kinds of details, including the presenter lineup and even an agenda on there so you'd know what's in store when you go check out PrimalCon. On the publishing side, heads up for an exciting book that's coming out uh, next month in May called Paleo Girl. And it's the first book of its kind that's actually targeting the Teenage Girl Audience. It's written by our good friend, Leslie Clinky here in Los Angeles, who's been hanging around the office for a long time and working on this dream for a long time, living the primal paleo lifestyle herself. And she has some amazing words to say to, to teenagers. So if you have a teenager, you're into the primal lifestyle not quite sure how to broach the subject or maybe have received some pushback with your dietary comments, I'm looking forward to giving this book to my daughter and letting her just soak it all in from another resource. So Paleo Girl coming out soon. And on the topic of youngsters, we have another book on its heels later in the fall called little grok meets the corgs and it's by once again our very own janae meadows our master designer and cinematographer and she's been working on this incredible book she showed us the galleys last year and been refining it and telling the story for the age group of four to eight and that's kind of loose i mean you can read it to younger kids and older kids will dig it too because it's very very clever beautifully illustrated of course by janae and her sister kagley And we look forward to getting those books out. Something a little bit, shaking it up a little bit on the pipeline. So hopefully you can join us at PrimalCon or at least read the books and listen to the podcast. Thank you so much. And until then, this is your host, Brad Kearns from Malibu. Thanks for listening to the Primal Blueprint Podcast with Mark Sisson.